thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. As we get started this morning, I wonder if you've ever found yourself in the midst of a big storm. You know, the kind where the rain is absolutely thrashing down, you can hear the wind whipping around outside, trees are uh, creaking and maybe even breaking off. Uh, A storm like that is a terrifying thing, isn't it? I can remember one in 2013 when we were living near Christchurch and we lost 6,500 trees over the four or five blocks around us. It was outrageous. In a storm like that, where you are really matters, doesn't it? Uh, One of my earliest memories is camping in a tent during Cyclone Bowler in 1988. Do you remember Cyclone Bowler? It was a big sucker. The canvas is an early memory. The canvas in that tent was flapping. It was like the walls were closing in on us. The rain was pounding down. It was coming into the tent. And the rain outside, the water levels were starting to come up. The water was coming into the tent. The trees were cracking around us and plenty lost their branches. To a four-year-old, the experience was absolutely terrifying. So much so that it's still etched in my memory 35 years later. In the middle of the night, we left that tent, as you can imagine, and we went to a friend's batch. And when we got to that friend's batch, everything changed for me. We were inside. Now, we could still hear the rain, we could still hear the wind, but we were safe. It was cosy, it was warm, the lights were on, water wasn't coming in. The storm still raged outside, but everything changed because it felt safe in there. In this short series called Under the Shadow of His Wings, we get the same sense time and time again of finding safety in God. As we think about some of the trials of life, as we think about the things that rage and come crashing down around us as the people of God, we think about the things that frighten us. And as we do that, we're going to remind ourselves that the refuge God offers a threatened people is total and complete. He is caring like a mother bird, we're told, coming near her young, keeping them safe under her wings, nearby, safe, warm, protected. That is what God is like to his people, sheltering us under the shadow of his wings. This week in Psalm 36, we're going to hear the wonderful refrain, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. As we hear that refrain, we're going to locate ourselves in the midst of a storm and trial for King David. He's being battered and blown about by wicked people. We're going to open the passage by thinking about what the wicked are like before we reflect on the love of God and how it means that we can trust that the refuge God offers a threatened people is total and complete. It is a place of safety. That's where we're going. Why don't we pray? Lord, we ask this morning that as as we open your word and reflect on it, you'd speak to us by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would take Psalm 36 and apply it to our lives in such a way that we would continue to run for you, our safety and refuge in times of trouble. Lord, make a difference in our lives because of these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as David starts this psalm, you'll notice that he describes two polar opposites. He talks about the sinfulness of the wicked and the love of God. He contrasts and compares those two things. He outlines the people who refuse to submit their lives to God's rule and authority, and he contrasts them to what God is like. He contrasts the wicked with the one who is perfect and righteous and loving and just and holy. It's almost like David describes two alternate realities that are existing at the same time. God is loving and faithful and righteous, but the wicked seem to run unchecked. They get away with whatever they want. They plot, they plan, they scheme, they speak evil things, and nothing seems to slow them down. The wicked are people who don't care about God. They don't care about his laws. They're the kind of people that do what they want when they want to, and if the topic of God ever comes up, they're likely to scoff and sneer at the very idea. They define their futures. They decide what is right. They do whatever seems fitting to them. Now, it may be that David's thinking about the neighbouring nations, his pagan uh, neighbours nearby. Uh, They pose a real threat to him and his throne. They've got power and military might, and Israel doesn't. It is weak, even though it's protected by God. It might be that when he's writing, he's worried about insurrection. He could be reflecting on the threats that come from within his kingdom. There are people like his own son Absalom who plot and scheme and whisper in dark corners, hoping to topple him from his throne and turn others against him. The wicked, whoever they are in David's mind, they all have one underlying thing in common. There is no fear of God before their eyes, verse 1. There is deeply ingrained base-level rebellion against God's right to call the shots or to divine anything of how they might live or conduct themselves in this life or how they might treat others and respect God's will and way. The wicked are people who don't rely on God. They don't even give him a second thought. They don't need to because his approval doesn't mean anything to them. There is already a voice that they're listening to to define what is good and right and appropriate. And verse 2 tells us what voice it is. They flatter themselves in their own eyes. It's their voice. It's the voice of people who think the same as them. These are people who rebel against the word of God, against his ways, his laws and his statutes. And they say, aren't we good? Aren't we clever at coming up with these schemes and ways of doing things? They're so caught up in their own success and their own strength, the power base that they're building, that they're blinded to their own sin. They can't see that their way of life is harmful to others, or more importantly, to themselves, as it separates them from God more and more. It's interesting that if you get bogged down in sin for long enough, or surround yourself with people of a similar persuasion or behaviour, then you start to get very comfortable with it. You see that attitude on the global scene, don't you? Think about political dictators who hold power at any cost. What do they do? They crush anyone who opposes them. They limit the flow of information for anyone who would criticise them. And they surround themselves with yes-men, the kind of people who will flatter them, who will say, this is a good and great thing that you're doing, O worthy ruler. They surround themselves with those who agree with them and they form a culture of harm. They put themselves above criticism or critique, often using violence, choosing instead the flattery of those who benefit from their oppression of others. 
These wicked ones that the psalmist describes, they flatter themselves. They use their words to bolster their egos and condone their wickedness. It's not just something that happens on the global stage, though, is it? It's something that happens for us. Think of the financier who likes to boast to other traders about how much they managed to take from the mum and dad investors this week that they managed to dupe. You see it in plenty of movies that reflect on those themes, particularly through the 80s and 90s. Or think of the young buck who impresses his mates about his latest sexual conquest, and they cheer him on and they slap him on the back, they egg him on to greater and greater. Or think about the older person who rips into the shop assistant or the waiter or waitress for getting their order wrong. They explode in rage and then later on they tell their friends about it. They celebrate together about how they put that idiot in their place. Together they rail against the younger people of today, hardening themselves in their self-righteous attitudes. Think about the parents who berate and yell at their children and who instead of limiting each other's responses to the challenges of parenting, they seem to escalate their responses, building on one another's anger and outrage like a tower, a Jenga tower in their family life that's likely to topple at any time. The wicked, whether on the global scene or in our own homes and lives, build communities of like-minded agreement, don't they? And so they end up condoning each other's behaviour, ideas and actions without a word of challenge, without a thought about how God asks people to live to his glory. They flatter themselves too much to detect their hate or sin, verse 2. Do we fall into the same tendency as people of God? Where we flatter ourselves and descended into groupthink, accepting ungodly attitudes instead of challenging each other in love. Do we build around us a culture of gossip where talking behind another's back goes totally unchallenged in our groups? Do we build around ourselves a culture of comfort where excessive and indulgent spending is celebrated and never questioned? Do we build a culture of pride in our spirituality where we look at those who don't worship or express their faith in the same way as us and we look down on them and exclude them? It's very easy for us to point the finger at outsiders when we think about the wicked who flatter themselves and boast, isn't it? The ones that are blinded to their sin, but the same tendency can creep into our hearts and into our church communities. So are we able to speak the truth in love rather than flattering ourselves in the groups where we feel very comfortable in the life of our church? The wicked ones that David describes with hardened hearts, deceived by their own self-generating rejection of God, they blind themselves to his goodness as they continue to say that their own way of doing life is good. And they spend their days and nights, we're told by David, plotting evil. It's that plotting that gives rise to his fear. And in David's position, you can understand why. He's the king of a fragile nation, with enemies on the outside and on the inside. He's got a lot to lose, doesn't he? So in the face of threats from those who despise God and his ways, how does David keep trusting? Well, he looks to the love of God. The remedy is to meditate on what God is like, and he does it brilliantly in verses 5 to 9. It's this truth that has lodged itself in David's heart, we see, verse 1, that changes his perspective on the world and those who he was so fearful of. Despite the threats and the danger, 
the ever-creasing opposition and godlessness of the world, David comforts himself with ultimate reality. God's love is never failing. It is so high it stretches to the heavens. His enduring faithfulness follows it right up to the skies, verse 5. There is no limit to those characteristics of God. His enduring faithfulness and his love are ultimate. There is nowhere or no one so lofty that they can't reach. God's commitment to truthfulness, to faithfulness and authority extend up to the heavens and down to the depths we get in this picture language and everywhere in between. He is so loving and so kind and so gracious, he even cares and provides for people and animals alike, David notes, verse 6. In this reminder for himself, David looks back on what God is like and what God's faithfulness means he will continue to be like. Because of who God is, his very character and how he acts that out in the world, David can run to a place of safety. He can run to the unfailing love of God as the world around him shrieks and he is threatened. As the storm rages around him, he looks to that love that's demonstrated in the strength and care and protection of God. Verse 7, people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And church, when the storms of life come our way, we can do the same. But we can do it in a magnified way. We've seen the shadows of these wings, haven't we? Which curl around and protect, which warm and nurture, which lovingly draw the small weak ones in, but we've seen them take a different shape. We've seen them outstretched on a cruel Roman cross, where Jesus didn't just shelter people under feathers like the picture, but through the pouring out of his blood. There on the cross at Calvary, he provided a refuge, a place of protection that goes beyond what David had hoped for. A protection that just doesn't keep us safe from the wicked outsider or the rebellious insider, but from the thoughts and rebellion which live in our own hearts and cause us to be separated from God and deserving of his wrath. Those wings, stretched out in love by the Lord Jesus, They free us from our debt of sin, of being counted among the wicked that David describes. Because there are times where we have lived without the fear of God before our eyes, where we've chosen to go our own way, where we spurn God's good and gracious word to us, where we step away from his righteous direction and the intention for his people and do our own thing instead. But in the refuge of God's wings... These arms outstretched on a cross, we find a ransom for sin and an exchange of Jesus' perfection for our rejection of God and his ways. For David, finding God's refuge and safety is like walking into a place of abundant feasting we see in verse 8. It's a river of delights, we're told. This feasting points those of us in Christ to a future reality, doesn't it? Where we will dwell face to face with our God in the new heavens and the new earth, enjoying his abundance and closeness and provision and care for us forever. But it's also something that we experience now. It's true now. 
Our lives are changed as we come to Jesus and are found in Christ. We do experience an abundance we didn't know before. We have this wonderful new whānau called the church who encourage us and draw us on in faith, who help to nurture us and care for us, who challenge us with their words and point us back to God's way of living. We have that amazing new family. We have a new direction and purpose where our values now look different. And instead we live Jesus' way. We seek for his values first. Not bolstering ourselves and building up our own kingdoms, but emptying ourselves so that his would expand. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us. Giving us new priorities, new motivations, new hearts, new affections as we're shaped more and more to live in line with God's will for his people. That's just some of the abundance that we receive now in the Lord Jesus as he sanctifies us day by day. We see with the woman in the well in John 4 something of Jesus bringing the refuge. He doesn't just bring satisfaction in the future, now he certainly will in the way that he will restore us and make us new, that he will undo the brokenness which results from our sin and the other's sin of others to us. But do you see that he offers her something now that all her lovers and husbands never could? He offers her true safety. He offers her eternal refuge. He offers her life that is eternal, which will reset her priorities, desire, her purpose, and change her fears. It will change everything if she takes refuge in Jesus. Now, where we got to in the reading, she didn't quite understand yet. He's not offering temporary relief, like a crisp, cold, clear glass of water, which was probably an attractive thought to someone who lives in a dusty, messy place and draws their water from a well. He offers her something else. He offers her life where every deep longing, every disappointment, every regret, every rebellion against God and his ways finds healing and wholeness and perfection in all that Jesus offers. He offers her life where every offence that's been committed against God is pardoned as he looks justly on the sacrifice of his son in our stead on the day of judgment. When David reflected on God's justice and faithfulness and righteousness, his unfailing love, it gave him a wonderful confidence to continue to seek God. Being reassured of God himself being life and light means that he can speak out the aspirational words of commitment to God, which are deeply rooted in the refuge God offers. As the world around him seems to shake, he's not being drawn to turn his back and join in with the wicked and imitate their way of finding success and power and influence, but to hold fast to God's faithfulness and righteousness and justice which will see him continue in steadfast faithfulness to his people. And we see it will result in the eventual downfall of those who oppose his ways in verses 10 to 12. The ones who are wicked will not win. 
The ones who are wicked will stand before the just judge. And as David set it up at the start, there are only two options. There is God's way with him or against him. For people like us who have accepted Jesus as Lord, shouldn't we turn to God in faith and confidence even more readily if our eyes have been opened to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus than David could? Ultimately, despite what they can achieve here and now, the foot of the proud won't hurt the people of God. The refuge that God offers a threatened people is total and complete. Evildoers, the wicked, the ones who reject the lordship of Christ, the ones who don't fear God or give him due reverence, who think of him as a second thought, They might flatter themselves with their plots and their schemes, but they'll be thrown down on the day of judgment, unable to rise, verse 12. While the people of God under his wings, his outstretched arms, will be raised to life with Christ, to rule and reign with him forever. That's got to make a difference, doesn't it, to how we live now? That's got to change how we feel about those who harm us at work and scorn us with their words. That's got to change how we react when the mums at the school gate close their ranks and won't let us join in because they know that we go to church. Or when our family member makes another joke about our faith and we feel awkward again at the barbecue. This year there's a good chance that we're going to come up against those who seem to prosper in the midst of their wickedness. They reject God's way and they seem to rule. We're going to see and encounter people who have no regard for God, who have no regard for living his way, who seem to plot in evil and deceive. We'll see them on the global stage and we'll weep at the pain that they cause the nations. We'll bump into them in our own lives, in our clubs, at work, maybe in our own families, and at times we will feel threatened and shaken. So write this message from God on your heart. His love for his people hasn't changed. It is unfailing. It stretches to the heavens and goes down to the deeps. And in Jesus, it has been made clearer than ever. With the gift of the Holy Spirit, who opens our eyes and hearts and minds to God's word, testifying to the work of Jesus now and in the future, we can draw strength on the same truth that God's love for his people is unfailing. It is guaranteed in the Lord Jesus. Church, we don't live our lives in a flimsy canvas tent which shudders and shakes when the storms of the wicked seem to rail against us. We are hidden under the shadow of God's wings. We are safe in his unfailing love. The refuge that God offers us in Jesus, is total and complete. It is dealt with our sin. By Jesus' death on the cross, that refuge has crushed the power of sin and death over us. It gives us full satisfaction, and it changes our hearts bit by bit to be more like the Lord Jesus. The refuge that God offers us is total and complete, so that we can depend on him in quiet trust. Why don't we pray?
Lord, we thank you for the refuge that you have provided for us of your unfailing love which is made known to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that when the storms of life come our way this year, we would run to him and find refuge under the shadow of his wings. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you offer us full satisfaction, that you have made atonement for our sin, and that because of that, we are safe with you forever. We thank you in Jesus' name and ask it for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Music